0: Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 468, air date October 1st, 2019. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayodure. As many of you know, I'm running for United States Senate, and one of the core principles of our campaign, unlike the career politicians who actually are muppets or puppets of people who control them, is that we want to actually... Uh, take on real problems and address them with real solutions. The problem is many of these politicians actually have no idea what the real problem is, or for that matter, they can't even solve anything because they're essentially ruled by lobbyists who tell them what the problem or fake problem is, and then they provide them with a fake solution that furthers their interests. And the politician is essentially in there for two, four, or six years, in and out, uh, spending most of their time trying to get reelected, elected um, at least 80, 90% of their time. In the shiva for senate campaign we want to focus again as i said on real problems to real solutions or real solutions to real problems so the problem and the solution that i want to focus on is big tech censorship everyone's heard about this you've probably heard from the quote unquote the right the issue there's a conspiracy which they may, there may be uh to watch what we're doing which likely there probably is but it's always presented in a very fear model Um, and that there is something we can't do, it's so big. But I applaud uh, those people on the right in bringing it up. Uh, The left typically tries to discount the problem, or others on the left, their solution is to break up the big guys. Let's break up Facebook, let's break up Google. And the reality is they want to approach it to regulation and one is based on fear. But when you really look at this, neither Google nor Facebook uh, will ever provide the real framework for politicians to understand what is actually going on. If many of you remember when Mark Zuckerberg was in front of the, uh, the Congress, the, uh, the Congress people were so dumb, unfortunately, they didn't even know what questions to ask him. He was running circles around them. But I'm going to offer you a real solution, and I'm going to actually identify what the real problem is and how we really solve big tech censorship. Um, the solution I'm promoting is not something I've provided in the last two days. This is something I've been talking about since 1997 when as a, a technologist, as a scientist, as an inventor, I noted this as a problem. So this is almost for 20 years. Uh, as many of you know, um, I created the first email system when I was a 14-year-old kid. And the reason it's important to review this is I didn't create text messaging. I didn't create electronic messaging. Uh, in fact, the military guys didn't even do that. At best, what they did was an early form of caveman reddit, which they attempted to snooker people into thinking that they did email. But you're looking at the guy who invented email. Uh, I was a 14-year-old kid in Newark, New Jersey, working at a health sciences institution, not in a military institution. Uh, In that health sciences institution, I was doing research to understand why babies were dying in their sleep, applying uh, computing to to, uh, problems in biology. While I was there, because of my skills as as a kid, even though I was working among people 30, 40, 50 years older, I was treated as a professional and I was given the challenge of converting the old-fashioned inter-office mail system. Those are all important. It was sort of the postal system within offices. And the way that system worked was every secretary was the creator of information. They had on their desktop, a physical desktop, Um, a typewriter, they would write a thing called a memo, and that memo had a structure to, from, subject. They would literally create carbon paper or use carbon paper to create copies. So if I was sending you a memo and I was going to also notify five other people uh, that they should also have a copy, it was called a CC, carbon copy. I as a secretary would have to put the first copy in, the carbon paper, the second paper, type it, do it again and again, and three or four times. So it's a very arduous process and these memos are put into an envelope tied with a string and they were sent through these pneumatic tubes. You had registered mail. Sometimes you did blind carbon copy. It was frankly a very complex system. That's a key word. It was a system. In those old mainframes, you could do these very simple text messages. That's not what I was working on, nor do I want to take credit for doing that. But I converted that entire system, every feature to move the secretary from the typewriter to the keyboard, by the way, which the elite scientists in their white jackets didn't think the secretaries were capable of using a computer. I did, I was a 14-year-old kid, perhaps because of my naivete. Uh, These women secretaries were really my collaborators. And I created what we call email. In fact, I called it email, a term never used before in the English language, because the operating system only supported five characters. After that, I went to MIT. In fact, when I came to MIT on the front page, when I was a freshman, September 1981, um, three students were recognized in the front page of the MIT newspaper out of the 1,041 for doing something of note. And I was one of those kids. And I looked at it, and being a good, humble Indian kid I was, I didn't think much of it, and I just moved on. Um, but that year, in 81, I met with the president of MIT, Dr. Paul Gray. Who was science advisor to Reagan and he said, Shiva, it's too bad you can't patent software, or the Supreme Court, to be specific, didn't recognize software patents. So he advised me to copyright it. And wasn't simply putting a C with a circle around it, as some ignorant people have said. I had to send in all my code. It went back and forth. On August 30th, 1982, a American kid was given the first, 17-year-old American kid was given the first US copyright for email, officially recognizing me as the inventor of email. I wrote the code called it email, I got the first copyright. Anyway, that's the history of email. In fact, uh, many years later, six years ago, it went into the Smithsonian. Um, and you can read about the quote-unquote controversy that was created by academics, who I, by the way, say are the practice the oldest profession in the world, because they this was like a new skull came and they could not accept the fact that email was not done by the military, it wasn't done by some nerd-looking guy that was done by a 14-year-old kid in Newark. So it's a bigger story about the invention of email because it's really about where does innovation come from. So the reason I share that with you, that was my first incarnation with email. I went to MIT to uh, three degrees, in fact, to four degrees. In the middle of my PhD in 1993, I once again got pulled back into email. What was going on? In 1993, many of you may know, if you're over the age of 40 or 30, that 1978, when I invented email up until 1992-3, email is really an office application. It was used in business. In fact, in a room of 1,000 people, if you asked how many people had email accounts, and I used to do these seminars, about maybe two people out of 1,000 would raise their hands. However, 1993, something happened. A thing called the World Wide Web came, WWW. And what that was, was a protocol which provided a graphical user interface over... Uh, the internet, which had existed in sort of a text form. And, and, And because of that, the email products were converted from text form into a worldwide web form. So you had companies like Hotmail, which is now part of Microsoft, Yahoo, Google. All these companies came to provide a web interface to the email system I invented. And that web interface now made email from an office application to a consumer application. This is important to remember. Email was prior to that an office application because it came from the inner office mail system. After 1993, you had an explosive use of email because every uh, day people started using. Now, one of the things I want to mention is when I first created email, people thought email would die. In fact, the doctor said, oh, why are we going to use this email? I have my secretary type my letters. So email's death always has always been predicted. So when the web came right away, people started using chat boards and discussion forums. And right away, people said, oh, email's going to die. Later on, as social media came and the cell phone became more prevalent, people texting, you could read about this, people saying, oh, email's going to die. At every one of these points, most of these experts who don't know the origin of email, who try to deny where it actually came from, most of these guys don't even know what email really is. What is email? Email is not... Uh, informal messaging. It's not community messaging as I talk. it. It's formal messaging. Uh, In my book, and again, this is not a promotion for the book. It's a great book called The Future of Email. I lay out what is email. If you really look at it, there are really, in my view, three modes of messaging. And this goes back to primitive times. There was what I call short messaging. Smoke signals, the sticky note, or the text message. These are short, informal messages. Another type of messaging is community messaging. There was a time when uh, communities after they went hunting, they would use the, the, the cave, they would actually put uh, uh, dyes or from plants on, uh, on their hands, and they would draw uh, 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 their handprints on a wall, almost like, you know, handbook, like Facebook. Um, and then later on, if many of you were in school, you saw what was called the bulletin board, another place for community messaging. And the third form of it um, is what we call the modern post, right? Blogs. These are actually community messaging. You put something up and other people uh, put their things up. Everything's public. Well, the, the origin of email is actually from commerce. At one point, we used to write commerce records in, on stone tablets. Then we started doing it on papyrus. And then we have the letter, and the transition of that, which was formal business communications, is where email came from. So when email first came in 1993, everyone started using email, um, and you had text messaging going on. You had community messaging, but over the last five, ten years, you see people will still do texting, they still do email, and they use social media. All those three are very different forms, um, and. Take it from me, email is never going to die, and, and I'll bet anyone on this, as long as there is businesses, because email is a formal mode of communication where you need the CC, the BCC, the inbox. It's a, that's where it originates from. Email today is used for issuing warrants. We close contracts in email. It's a business communication medium, very different than text messaging. So that's the background. Why do I give this background? In 1997, something very important took place. What happened was email volume overtook postal mail volume. Now, 1993, as I mentioned to you, was my second life in email. As email volume was growing, and I was doing my PhD in, in a field called pattern recognition, which is really the guts of artificial intelligence. I, I've been doing research in that for 20 years. Um, but I was t- creating a whole new platform for my PhD to automatically analyze all different kinds of patterns, documents ultrasonic signals, uh, handwriting, and I was creating a a sort of an Uber platform to do this. In the middle of that, I got a call uh, from some people working for the United States White House. Bill Clinton was in office at the time, and email volume at the White House skyrocketed. This is 93. Prior to that, the White House would get physical letters and they'd have interns, probably shouldn't use the word interns with Bill Clinton, but they had interns opening up these emails uh, these letters, and they had 147 different buckets. And so if you got a letter on education, they would send you out the form letter saying, dear, blah, 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 here's our position on education. Well, when email came, the White House was doing something quite primitive. They would actually print out the email, and only if the email had a home address on it would they then respond to it with a print mail. So the o- executive office of the president decided to run a co- contest with the National Institute of Standards called a Text Retrieval Conference, TREK to see were there AI or automatic technologies that could read an email and categorize into one of those 147 buckets, 147 buckets. Um, I was called because people heard about my work and there was around five other public companies. I was very fortunate. I ended up winning that contest. The White House sent a set of emails and they independently verified, did your technology categorize it? That led to my leaving um, MIT in the middle of my PhD, much to the chagrin of many people in 90. Three, and I started a company called Echomail, E-C-H-O-M-A-I-L. And our approach was that I had discovered a way that I was watching how people read emails and I noticed that most emails have an attitude, some sentiment. Most emails, people would tell something about themselves. Most emails, people would ask for something, a request parameter. And most emails, people would tell you some issue. And there were essentially five dimensions, So I used around 25 different techniques. I took an engineering systems approach and I created this very powerful, and I don't want to use the word AI because AI in many ways is a sort of, uh, (laughs) it's a bigger discussion we'll have. But I took an engineer's approach and I I had the highest categorization. So that was the basis of the Echomail technology. Uh, In 95, we applied for uh, three major US patents and we got those. And Echomail grew from... You know myself and other people to a global company managing email for the largest companies in the world. In fact, in 2000, if you look at Technology Review, which is the most uh, you know, popular technology eminent magazine in the world, uh, my technology is featured on the front page because we were helping Nike handle emails, American Express, etc. So I was deep back into email, my second life in email, solving the problem that email created. But in 1997, I noticed something. What did I notice? I noticed that, as I mentioned, email volume overtook postal mail volume. And someone uh, being somewhat uh, politically inclined, someone wanting to be an activist, I saw what was going on. I saw that these free email services, Hotmail, Google, etc um, that most people were not reading the fine print in those privacy statements and that people were actually trading their freedom for free email. That's what was going on. And was going on was that these companies actually owned your email. It wasn't your email. So I approached the Postal Service executives uh, through a friend of mine in Washington, uh, senior people, and I said, look, the Postal Service needs to do its job. And they go, they said, what do you mean? I said, look, the Postal Service was actually set up by Franklin and by the founders of this country. And listen to me very carefully on this. The Postal Service was set up It wasn't really a part of the government. It was set up as a decentralized organization so you and I could protect our democracy. The founders knew that governments could get oppressive, just like the Second Amendment. They also had the First Amendment, but the Postal Service, I would argue, was the teeth to the First Amendment. The Second Amendment was really the weapon to protect, but the Postal Service was really the infrastructure. And why do I say that? The Postal Service was created so I could send you a communication You as an American citizen, you could send me something and no one would interfere. In fact, the Postal Service had its own police force. So if postal workers interfered or someone opened up your letters, 20 year sentence in prison, which is still true today. So remember the founders at that time, they only had you know print print letters. They didn't have digital, they didn't have faxes, they didn't have cell phones, but the Postal Service was set up to protect your and my communication, not just print letters. This is very important. So the Postal Service allowed me to send for pennies a letter to you and no one could interfere. And up until 1970, 70% of the letters were political letters. People were sending newsletters, etc. And you have to remember, the founders did this because the British crown was not allowing American people to communicate freely. So this was one of the most powerful pieces of the American democratic system, the Postal Service. And that postal service infrastructure enabled us to have freedom. So, you know, you had people, right-wing people, Nazis, Green Party, communists, all communicating. That was a vibrancy of our democracy. Whether you're left, right, it didn't matter. This postal service allowed you to communicate and have forums, discussions, etc. Now, 1997, when postal volume overtook it, I met with these officials and I said, look, you need to do your job because email really is under your purview you should offer a public email service. And I, and I said, this would offer you revenue, but more importantly, it would allow Americans a chance to protect their communications infrastructure. And I said, I believe Americans would probably pay 40 or $50 a year to know that that email was, could not be interfered. Yes, they're getting this free stuff, but if people really woke up to realize what this was, they would uh, at least pay 40 or 50 bucks. Well. These were executives. Remember, most of these executives are bureaucrats. They're not the innovators of Franklin or Jefferson were. They sort of said, yeah, yeah, you're a 29-year-old kid. We're a 500,000-person organization. Uh, We're bigger than Walmart. What do you know about the Postal Service? That was the end of that idea squashed by a bunch of bureaucrats. Fast forward to 2011, and you can go read about this in the press, is the Postal Service announces that they're going bankrupt. Okay, huge multi-billion dollar deficits. So I did a series of interviews, one of them which appeared in Time Magazine and Fast Company in 2011. And I said, look, these guys, I was quite angry, are really idiots. They should have listened to my idea and that I have an amazing way, in fact, many ways that they could generate billions and billions of dollars in revenue. And I was hammering them so hard through my interviews that the inspector general of the postal service, the IG, Dave Williams, contacted me, not the postmaster general, the inspector general, because he was concerned about the critiques. And he said, Shiva, what are you talking about? I said, look, Dave, you guys aren't doing your job. There's an opportunity to also generate a lot of revenue. And what ended up happening was, Dave actually was a visionary. He hired me and uh, paid me quite a bit of money to offer my expert advice. And I ran a series of workshops. I generated two reports showing how billions of dollars could be generated if the postal service started offering digital services. Those were submitted to the Postmaster General. Nothing has happened. Okay? So the reason I'm bringing this up is that the Postal Service, and I repeat, uh, and I've done this on many shows, and people are finally starting to pick it up, but this is the idea that was created by an inventor and a scientist, and it's an idea that I've been promoting. And as a politician, as a statesman, this is how you get your freedom. The Postal Service needs to do its job. What does that look like? Well, think about it. There are postal offices all in every neighborhood, multiple in many cities. Those offices, there's two parts to the solution. The first part is a software solution, which I'll talk about. The Postal Service can set up a decentralized set of servers where they actually offer email brought to you by the Postal Service, which means brought to you by you and me, the equivalent of a YouTube, equivalent of Facebook, social media. And that is protected by the laws of the constitution. You may have to do a couple of tweaks to it to make sure digital falls under that, but what that means is that you own your content and you can distribute that and no one can intervene, interfere. If it does, if they do, it's a 20-year sentence in prison. That's a software solution, which is you know software, hardware, pennies now. And I believe you as citizens would probably pay about 50 bucks for it, which is, by the way, what Google charges the business edition, all right? The second part of that solution if we want to talk about net neutrality, I'll do a whole talk on this. The problem with the net neutrality solution, they've only talked about half of it, which is they're only talking about telcos, the pipe. Google and Facebook, the on-ramps, control all of the on-ramping onto that um, content. But if you think about the telcos, Verizon, the Comcast, go down the list, right? AT&T, they actually control the pipe. From the time you're getting this message from my home, going through the Wi-Fi out, that's controlled by major telecommunications providers. We don't own our network. But that wasn't the the promise of the Constitution of the United States Postal Service. It was the people's network. That's what the Postal Service was. The way we regain that, all those little postal offices, well, there's very, very cheap technology now where they could put WiMAX or other types of antennas, very low cost, And we could build what's called a mesh network, a network by the people for the people brought to you by the Postal Service, So, which means the software is running on the Postal Service networks and the hardware. So you as a citizen have a choice. You can use your Comcast.net or you can use Hotmail. You can use, uh, you know, for the hardware, Verizon, or you can pay 50 bucks and your communications are protected and it's free again. So... Regulations never get anywhere because we know who wins that game. We need the Postal Service to do their job. And this is what they were mandated to do. So all of you people who want to protect the Second Amendment, there is another weapon to the Second Amendment to protect the first. And that's the U.S. Postal Service doing their job. And that is my solution. So in summary, the real problem here is the Postal Service ain't doing its job. Not like we need to regulate these monolithic organizations which are capitalist organizations, which have all their lawyers, which you know would be an attack on their capitalist framework, which is what we believe in America. The real issue is there's an organization which doesn't need to be regulated. They just need to do their job, which is the United States Postal Service. That's the real solution. So anyway, this is Dr. Shiva Ayodhuri, Shiva for Senate. And what I want to let you know is career politicians can't even think like this. And it's about time that you got people like me In office, we're going to fight for you as a scientist, as an inventor, as a statesman. And what our campaign is really about truth, which is we need to focus on the real problem. It's about freedom and it's about health, health of you, your body, your community and the society. Anyway, this is Dr. Shiva for Senate. Go to Shiva for Senate. Support our campaign. Be a volunteer. Support us in any way you think you feel comfortable with. Thank you.